Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Ian Tyndall. Ian is the founder and owner of Belay Rope Access, an IRATA and Global Wind Organisation accredited training provider based in East Sussex. Ian, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme this afternoon. My pleasure, thank you. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Ian. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we look at that word Mm. leader aside for a moment to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? Well, I think I I don't think you can divorce it from um, other words and, and certainly from my own experience. Um, in my work prior to opening the company, I was uh, my job title was team leader, um, and that was for working on oil rigs, doing inspection jobs, um, uh, doing high risk confined space um, work, and things like that. Um, and so, you know, that word team it always seems to it kind of it, it goes together like bread and butter um, for me. It's 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 a, an integral part of the word leader. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it demonstrates how you really can't be a leader without, without having a team, um, coming along with you. Um, you can't be, just be on your own. You can't just be an individual, um, uh, just doing your own thing. You have to relate whatever you do to the rest of the people you're working with. Um, and it's, it's a really, you know, most of the teams that I've been a, a leader of, well, all of them actually. Um, yes, I've got my own skill sets and my own experience and my own knowledge, but it's every single member of that team will know stuff that I don't know. Um, and I think the key thing about leadership um, and what a leader means is to bring uh, the best out of whoever you've got in your team, um, because nobody really, you know, can do a, an entire job. Um, on their own and you absolutely have to have other people along with you you do that's um, absolutely right and so if we think about sort of the people management that has to go into leading a team from a business leader's Mm. perspective and how would you describe your own sort of personal people management style um (laughs) it's 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 been a learning curve uh it really has um, you know, when you're when you're working for a big company, a big uh, multinational, and you're just a, a small cog um, in a very very big wheel, um, you uh, kind of have that assurance that there's somebody higher up than you that you can go and ask questions of. The difference is when you're running. When I started a company by myself, and I was initially doing absolutely everything myself, I was making the coffee, doing the training doing the accounts, the marketing, cleaning the toilet, doing everything. Um, that was a different uh, style, if you like, and then um, a different experience. And then as I brought on staff um, and subcontractors, and we've got about, I suppose, 10, 10 subcontractors who work for me at the moment just doing um, uh, training um, of various sorts, um, it's a different experience again. Um, so now I have to, uh, I don't have any, uh, any other staff anymore. I did have a, a couple of apprentices, 
Um, but uh, but they didn't last, unfortunately. They went elsewhere. Um, but I think now I'm I'm just on my own as the the owner and the manager of the business. It's it brought something out that actually um, has benefited me and benefited the business uh, because I'm able to delegate a bit more to the trainers themselves and bring them out of themselves so that they they feel a more involved part of the business. Um, so it's been an interesting process, a, a learning experience over the last sort of five years uh, from when I, I started the business to now. Mm. That word learning is incredibly key. And I think it, there's a lot of merit in mm. that approach of giving people sort of the wiggle room to show their own form of leadership, be independent and try things for themselves totally, and be willing yeah. to learn from that experience. And of course, mm. I think it's fair to say we're going through one of the greatest learning curves that business has ever encountered in the here <laughs> and now with COVID-19. Mm. Of course, it's been a very difficult and a very challenging and sensitive time for many people. But with that has come a need for businesses to innovate and adapt in order to survive. And those that mm. do make it through ultimately going to be a lot stronger for that um linking that back to learning ian is there anything that you would say you've taken away and learned as a real positive from this experience lots actually lots it, it, it so i mean our situation was we we shut down uh well i think the very day that that boris um uh, came out and sold everything to shut um we were we just finished a, a, a training course um, and and then we were we were shut down completely for two months. Um, I think so. That for that two months, um, uh, I was basically doing a lot of DIY, and I was obviously trying to um, uh, decompress a little bit from a very busy time of year. January and February is always very busy for us, um, and. Uh, actually, yeah, it was a fantastic opportunity. I, you know, I'm incredibly lucky that um, that I was able to to do that and to have that opportunity. I'm lucky I didn't have any staff. Um, all of the um, trainers are subcontractors, so they were able to apply for um, for financial assistance through that scheme. Um, uh, I do. I would. We had absolutely no income, um, but. Uh, and I was I was able to furlough myself for a few pennies a month um, because I was as a director you you pay yourself in dividends, um, but it allowed me to really take a step back for a change because usually I'm just absolutely full on uh, seven days a week in the business and it really forced me um, to take a step back and and really look at, at the strategy at about where the business had come from and where we wanted to go to. Um, I did some training myself. I did a, um, uh, an online uh, ISO 9001 lead auditors course that, that really kind of gave me another perspective on on how to develop the business. Um, and uh, we've come out of it now. We, we came out of lockdown in mid-May because we were getting so many inquiries from individuals. Um, all the trainees have to re- revalidate their, their certification every two or three years, uh, depending on the course. And so um, a lot of them were getting, uh, most, of, you know, most of the guys work on uh, wind turbines, offshore wind turbines that we train. So obviously they have to keep going because they have to keep the lights on. Um, and so their, their certificates had to be renewed. So in mid-May, we've decided to, to open again um, and we've been busy ever since. But it's, it's really, yeah, I was able to, to take a step back and really focus and see how I wanted the, the business to, to develop in the future. 
Um, and it got my mojo back, if I'm honest. <laughs> it really gave me a break, and, and I'm now back full steam ahead. It's been a real period of self-reflection in that sense, hasn't it? And one of the things that mm. we have been looking at as well are our working practices going forward and how that might be affected. Mm. Um, do you think that there are any features of this lockdown period that have become a new norm that could end up being a permanent part of the way that business functions in the UK? I, I, I can't really speak about other businesses. I mean, uh, we're a, a pretty niche uh, operator um, and uh, even within our industry we're relatively niche um, in terms of what we do we we, we are kind of specializing in in very advanced rescue um, advanced uh, emergency care um, first aid um, in, in very nasty confined spaces so there's not a lot of people doing that and in terms of how we can uh, adapt to a new normal, I think you know we are we 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 do what we can, but there comes a state, there comes a time where actually there's not much else we can do in terms of distancing or um, uh, or, or, or hygiene measures and things like that. We we have to get down and dirty and uh, get stuck in um, uh, into the training to make it as realistic as possible so that the people who are doing the training are as prepared as possible uh, for a real incident, a real emergency. Um, so I think, you know, generally looking at, at business overall, I think that um, a lot. it seems to me that a lot of businesses are, in a sense, COVID washing, in the sense that, in the same way that they might do green washing to, to paint themselves as a, um, as a, as a responsible company. I think, business has to be honest and say, well, look, you know, we, we, we do a risk assessment. Right? You know, my job is, is essentially about doing very complex risk assessments um, and uh, in high risk environments um, and hazard rich environments. But so in a sense, you know, we, we have to be realistic and say the, the chances of, of catching a virus are, this much, the chances of developing a serious uh, complications from having the virus are this much, but what are the consequences of not doing real, proper, um, uh, realistic training in a, in a realistic environment um, with a team of people that you're working with? So we, 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 we can you know, look at that, but I think uh, the new normal will be more towards uh, hospitality and, and, um, and other industries like that and travel. Um, I mean, for myself personally, obviously I, I do travel a lot for work. Um, I, I, up until March, I was doing at least two flights a month, uh, two flights a week, sorry, um, into Europe and further afield as well to assess other training companies' candidates. Um, so I'm, I'm not looking, really looking forward to having my first flight in a couple of weeks over to Denmark um, with all of the restrictions in place. But you have to accept it. That's, that, that is the new normal, I guess. Exactly. And um, with the new normal coming, what do you think is on the horizon over the next 12 to 18 months for yourself, specifically in 4 belay rope access? And what do you really hope to achieve during that period? Well, I hope that we can um, get back to uh, where we were before um, and the revenues that we were getting. We're already um, uh, on, well on the way there. 
Um, I think you know one of the things one of the things again that we've been very lucky with um, is that uh, whilst we weren't we weren't able to apply for the the first initial grant um, scheme uh, because we sublet our facility off off a, another company. Um, but we were able to apply for a, a business bounce back loan, and we've we've taken um, a fifty thousand uh, pound business bounce back loan based on our turnover, um, and that's going to be a, a really useful little pot of money to invest in um, uh, in, uh, in new training courses, uh, the accreditations that we that we require to to run new training courses. But it's a it's a real um, it's a really uh, uh, very, we've got to look at it very, very carefully, um, and make sure that we're not just throwing money at facilities and and uh, things like that. Things that that will make money for the company, that will increase revenue. So it's it's a it's a massive opportunity, really, in that sense. Um, which sounds terrible to to say, but um, uh, I think it, it, the uh, I'm not saying that the COVID virus is a massive opportunity, but. But the what's come out of it could, for us at least as a business, um, be a real, um, real opportunity to grow um, into the future. I think. I see exactly what you mean, Ian. It has been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many, but there will be opportunities mm-hmm. that do come about for businesses as a result of this pandemic. And I mm-hmm. think, given how informative it's been discussing this with you today, it would actually be hugely beneficial, I think, from a listener's perspective to perhaps have you back on the programme and join us in future just to see what sort of opportunities are coming about in the market and catch up on how things at the business are getting on as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think... Um, I think the next year will be very interesting. Um, uh, you know, we, we we don't know whether there'll be other other lockdowns, um, such as is happening in Leicester. Um, you know, localized lockdowns or even a national lockdown if there's a second wave of, of the virus. Um, I think you know we will have to look at very carefully at whether we um, uh, potentially lock down again or whether we try and manage the risk and manage the business uh, so that we. Uh, can can carry on. Other companies, other competitors of ours in in the UK and abroad, um, did carry on um, and uh, and put in put in place measures that, that, that allowed them to do that. Well, theoretically, they did anyway. Um, but uh, I think we we need to perhaps really look at, uh, at what we're doing and, and see if we can just um, uh, focus on. Uh, focus on the future and, and focus on um, trying to make the business uh, more resilient um, than it already is. Sounds as if there are still some big plans there, even amid the uncertainty, in for sure. I have to say, yeah. it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme, um, and it's been really insightful, not just for myself as host, but also from a listener's point of view. And until we hopefully do speak again in future, do please take care and stay safe with all still going on, because there are a great many variables still, as you've mentioned, and we're not quite out of the woods with this one yet. No, absolutely not. That was Ian Tyndall speaking, founder and owner of Belay Rope Access. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has taken up the post of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. Um, during his days as a player, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper 
goalkeeper in history. Quite impressive. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger 
that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after, because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism 
that you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to 
make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know, Eva, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become 
an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, was it 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f 
for us to have that extra element of the the red for Ruth there and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration. Um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.